Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, filling in for Ashley Ford, and this is Woman 2BK. Coming up, a Jewish writer grapples with the massacre in Pittsburgh. We're the brothers and sisters of George Soros and of Sheldon Adelson. And I think we have a lesson here to teach, you know, America more generally. Like, you can be different. You can have different points of view from your neighbors. And then, have you ever wondered about the inner thoughts of a grain of sand? Or the dreams of a pillow? What gives elevators a rise? If so, there's a podcast for you. It's called Everything is Alive. If you're a pencil... What is it? What what kind of personality does it give you if you are constantly having to write other people's messages and never getting to say your own thing? Hi, thanks for joining us. Just ahead, the creator of the podcast sensation Everything Is Alive, which probes the soul of a can of cola and the yearnings of a Prospect Park lamppost. But first, the weekend's mass shooting in a Pittsburgh synagogue has many of us asking questions. Deep questions about our society and where we're headed with a feckless, fear-mongering, self-enriching narcissist at the helm. A bad place, it seems. The event has also prompted a debate within the diverse American Jewish community about the public toleration for a president who has made repeated calls to violence, with some of those calls now bearing dreadful fruit. Many Jews position themselves on the left and abhor the president's policies and practice, while others fervently support him, despite his winks to white nationalists and neo-Nazis. Trying to unpack some of this, Batya Unger-Sargon has written a piece in The Forward where she is opinion editor, and she's asking if there can somehow be unity for the American Jewry and for us all. Batya joins us by phone to talk more about it. Batya, thanks for coming on 112BK. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your attention to this issue. Our community is really, really devastated, but one of the things that's really lifting a lot of us up is just the continued attention to it, people talking about it, being in the news, and people not looking away, so thank you. Absolutely. It's so important that we focus our attention on this. And I want to draw attention as well to your two recent opinion pieces. Both are focused on the relationship between the American Jewish voting populace and President Trump. The first one is called What the Pittsburgh Massacre Talk me about Jews in the age of Trump. And I'm curious, what what did the massacre teach you about America's Jews? So something that I've noticed since Trump got elected is the way that he has done in the entire American community, he has also really exacerbated a lot of the pre-existing tensions and differences in the Jewish community. So 71% of American Jews voted for Hillary Clinton. The majority of our community sees itself as very liberal, pro-choice, pro-LGBTQ, pro-immigrant, pro-refugee, incredibly pro-immigrant. And then 30% is on the more hawkish side, and that includes our Orthodox brothers and sisters who are extremely pro-Israel, and as are a lot of Republicans. And so for them, Trump has really been sort of a beacon of hope, and a lot of Jews, especially on the right, still see themselves as a kind of embattled minority, Um, and so Israel is incredibly important to them. And do you think in the wake of of Pittsburgh and before that Charlottesville, there has been any movement in those numbers? Does that 30 percent still support Trump? Uh, In fact, uh, so I can tell you about the Orthodox community, about 55% of the Orthodox community voted for Trump. That's a little over half. The latest polls a couple months ago showed that support for him had risen to about 80%, 85%. So support for him has only risen in the hawkish right side of the Jewish community thanks to everything he's done for Israel. Can this be attributed exclusively to his support for Israel, um, moving the embassy, other pro-Israel policies, or are there other reasons for this, do you think? I think while the separation of church and state is important, 
incredibly important to the Jewish community overall. Uh, the Orthodox and the right-hand side of it tend to interpret that the way that a lot of Christians do today, meaning that the separation of church and state is supposed to protect religious people from a secular state, whereas liberal Jews tend to see it as, you know, protecting people who are secular from a religious state. And do you see Trump's support for Israel as actually pandering to his evangelical base, or do you think that he is considering the Orthodox Jewish community? I tend to see Trump as a transactionalist. I think the Christian evangelical base is very important. I think you can't underestimate the role Sheldon Adelson has played. He's given Trump a lot of money, and the New York Times reported that a lot of that money during the campaign was specifically for moving the embassy to Jerusalem. So you mentioned Sheldon Adelson, and another one of your articles, which is Donald Trump, Meet America's Jews, They're Protesting Your Hate, sort of talks about the diversity within the American Jewish population. On the one hand, you have Sheldon Adelson. On the other hand, you have George Soros. But you talk about the strength and the diversity of the American Jewish community. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think something you're seeing a lot of is just um, this diverse community coming together in the wake of tragedy, but embracing its diversity. Like, we're very, very diverse. There's Orthodox, there's Reform, there's Conservative Jews, there's Jews of no religion. You know, as I say in the piece, we're the brothers and sisters of George Soros and of Sheldon Adelson. And I think we have a lesson here to teach, you know, America more generally, like, you can be different. You can have different points of view from your neighbors and still feel that you're part of the same community as them. You have synagogues across the United States, including in Pittsburgh, where there are Trump supporters and people who hate Trump praying together. And I think that there's something really powerful in that. Now, that said, the majority of the American Jewish community does hold Trump at least somewhat responsible for uh, the attack. And, and I think you really saw that yesterday when he showed up to Pittsburgh and nobody greeted him when he landed. And, and really, he was greeted by protests and not by you know a, a, a community waiting to be embraced by him. So you mentioned the protest in Pittsburgh. Um, yeah. Do you feel like this is an inflection point for Jewish activism in America? I think something that I've really been impressed by has been the outpouring of love and support from the Orthodox community around this terrible tragedy. And I, I really can't help but feel that, you know, there's been a big divide in the way that Israel and Israelis have seen this event and the way that the American Jewish community has seen it. But I, I really see a lot of unity and a lot of coming together. And I wonder if that won't have some kind of political impact. Any closing thoughts that you want to leave us with? Keep the fallen in your prayers. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate Thank your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. On the one hand, I was very angry at human beings for being in this position to consume us, says a can of generic brand cola in the hit podcast series Everything is Alive. Like the pillow, the lamppost, and the other inanimate objects who are interviewed, the can explores existential questions, not only important to the things themselves, which are often used, ignored, taken for granted, but also to us animate objects. Am I just a can? Am I soda? What does it mean to be soda? Am I part of the larger ocean of soda out there? Am I just the individuated soda? Am I soda interacting with a can? Am I can being slowly eaten away by the soda inside me. I've thought about this a lot. It's been called a unique, quirky, and smart little package with an unexpectedly moving edge. And full disclosure, I've been a contributor to some of the episodes. I'm happy to have the podcast creator, Ian Chillog, with us today. Ian, welcome. Hi. 
when you first told me about the concept of the show that you were going to be interviewing inanimate objects, I thought funny. And then when I listened to the first few episodes, I was struck by how poignant they yeah. are. How would you describe the genre of the show? Yeah, I I don't think it's a comedy show. Like the premise sounds ridiculous, but for me the goal is just that it be believable that you know at least for a few minutes in an episode you actually believe that a lamppost is talking to you. And so we make choices that are more about having a deeper character than jokes. And how did you get the idea for the show? It's kind of just a way that I've always joked around, you know, like pretending, thinking about how awful my chair's job is, that it has to be sat on by people It's all the an time. honor. It would be an honor <laughs> to be your chair, Ian. Yeah, you know, actually, I am doing an episode with a subway seat, and he actually, he loves his job. He feels like it's a real way to make a connection with a person. But also, I've been a producer for NPR for a long time, and when you're a producer, Often you're trying to find the right guests for your host to interview. So if there's a story they want to do about bananas, you're finding the world's foremost banana expert. And after years of doing that, I just thought it would be a really fun experiment if you could find like the most primary source and talk to the banana. Interview the banana itself. itself. Yeah. And how do you select the objects, do you allow the voice actors, because there are voice actors behind the objects, to choose what they want to do, or do you match make? Yeah, so I keep a long list of things. I have like a list of, I don't know, 20 or 30 things that feel like they could have a character, have a personality. And then I do a little bit of research into the thing to see if it has, because we try and get a little bit of real information in each show. And once something has risen to the top of that list and feels like it has some actual truth behind it, I'll give each actor two or three choices of, of which one. And usually they decide immediately that one jumps out at them as feeling like themselves. It speaks to them. Yeah. How do you prepare your guests ahead of time? So you mentioned you do a little research, you want something factual in there, but a lot of people are surprised to hear that the show is not scripted. Right, yeah. So a couple days before we do our real taping, the interview, I'll get on the phone with them and just talk about basic character notes. Um, is your pencil an optimistic pencil or a pessimistic pencil? And then also, like we talk about thingness a lot, like the thingness of the thing and what that does to shape a personality. Like if you're a pencil, what is it? What what kind of personality does it give you if you are constantly having to write other people's messages and never getting to say your own thing, or um, that you're constantly being shrunken and shrunken by a pencil sharpener? Like, how does that shape who you are as your character? But I don't even in that first conversation, I don't even want the answers to that. I just want them to start thinking about it, and they do that, and then come back a couple of days later and do the interview. A friend of mine who is a feminist philosopher, academic, said that she was struck by how philosophically rich mm -hmm. these episodes are, and in particular, uh, the most recent one, which is an interview with a grain of sand, right. which yes. maybe we can listen to a little bit of it. So you say of yourself that you're a, a person, right? Yeah. yeah, I would say I am, I am a person. So, like, why aren't you a grain of person? Like, uh, why do I not consider myself as, like, a a fraction of all of humanity yeah like that that makes more sense yeah tell me if 
if this existentialness was a purposeful decision that you made when you were thinking about the show, or did this just sort of arise by accident? Well, I do want these things to be reflecting on us, you know, because it's part of the purpose of doing it is we're so, we humans are, of course, not self-conscious when we're alone and we're with our stuff. So if they could perceive us, they would see a lot of things that other humans wouldn't. They would see us at our sort of just like least performing self. So I think there is always an opportunity for them to be thinking deeply and seeing things that maybe we don't see. I've, I've been surprised where some of the episodes have gone philosophically, but I did always want there to be a level that was something more than the story and more than the comedy of it. Talk to me about some of those surprises. What was something that you didn't anticipate coming up? I mean, in the first episode, which is an interview with a can of cola, and he is a generic can of cola, so no one ever chose him because there are better cola choices. So he had a lot of time on the shelf to think. And also, because of the nature of what he is, he's never done the thing that he's known for. He's known for being a refreshing beverage, but he spends most of his life waiting to be, you know, that refreshing refresh, beverage. yeah. Yeah. So in the course of that episode, at the end, basically, he's up against, do I want that to happen? Because also, after somebody drinks me, I'm gone. But it's also the thing that I'm, you know, made to do. So at the end of the episode, spoiler, I drink him. And I was surprised by uh, it was weirdly emotional. Like, on one hand, it's a totally ridiculous thing for a person to be talking to a can of cola. But we were both sort of in it. And I think actually thinking about the things he was talking about, considering his cola death. Tell me a little bit about how you view your own role as the interviewer, because you're also sort of like an interpreter spirit guide to the human world for a lot of these inanimate objects. How do you approach it? And you have great empathy as well for them. Yeah. I mean, my general philosophy is the less of me, the better. And it's just like talking to a human person. Like you just try and listen and see what they, I mean, I think it's more like talking to a human person in kind of a friend relationship than in a professional relationship. Because as an interviewer, you're listening and trying to draw out someone's story. In a friend relationship, you're listening, trying to draw out a story, but also trying to see what a person needs so you can give it to them. And that's been a theme as sort of like object wish fulfillment. So in the course of the conversation, yeah, just paying attention to what's missing for anything and then trying to find a way to make it happen. Have you started looking at the inanimate objects in your life differently since you've produced the show? Yes. And... We also hear about that a lot from listeners. For me, we did a taping, we did an episode with a bar of soap named Tara, who is down to, I think she says her sliver life crisis. She's like, the letters have worn off. She's smaller than she was. And I do, I weirdly feel sad every time I see the bar of soap in my own shower. <laughs> um, we've heard people saying the same thing. Uh, and also people saying, it's hard to drink their cola after listening to the show. Is there an inanimate object that you identify very heavily with? Like if, if you were to be on the show, who would you want to give voice to? Hmm. That's interesting. 
well, the the subway seat episode that's coming up, I I admire his approach to the world and optimistic approach. I don't know. I guess I see things. You know, I see things in each of these things, these objects that I admire, which is weird. And and what has the response to the show been? I had a friend tell me that she. Uh, cried three times during mm-hmm. the Crane of Sand episode. Is this a common thing that you hear? We hear about a lot of crying. Uh, it's hard times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is. It's a weird. It's a weirdest. The show. I didn't design it to be escape for people, but it has ended up being that. Like we just did a Halloween episode with a pumpkin, a jack o' lantern, and uh, she talks a lot about sort of the horror of being carved. And as I was putting that together, it was initially really funny to me that that it would be <laughs> this, you know, that Halloween is so much more a nightmare for a pumpkin than for a person. <laughs> right. Like the fear is all from the pumpkin. But then thinking about the way people are reacting to the show, I ended up making it much more gentle what happened to her because I because people, I don't know, there's an appetite and a need for escape at the moment. Yeah. What do you what do you hope people will take away? You know, is it is it escapism? Is it a greater empathy for people or things that are different from them? Um, I, I don't have a goal really mm-hmm. other than to make a thing that feels immersive, but in seeing how people react and seeing that people talking about saying things like I find myself having empathy for a, a a grain of sand or for a bar of soap. Let me think about why I don't have empathy for people in my life. Like, how is this possible? I have this capacity. And sort of seeing other people explore those things after listening to the show while I didn't set out to do it is really rewarding. Yeah, I'm always curious, too, about the gender and maybe race choices being made. Yeah. Um, Which, you know, it's a podcast. You can't see the person talking but yeah, I'm, I'm curious if you give any thought to that, to like the vocal diversity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I certainly am not casting. Like I'm not, my post is Irish, for example. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the most part, I'm not thinking, oh, it makes so much more sense for this balloon to be a certain gender. But I do want to make sure that it, there's always a diversity of voices. What What objects do we have to look forward to in the future, or or do you have do you have like a real top of the list one that you just haven't quite cracked yet, or or put the right voice to? Well, um, the ultimate goal, the like final episode, is I really want to do uh, an Ice Cube played by Ice Cube. I feel like <laughs> once we pull that off, we will have accomplished everything. Great. I don't know if Ice Cube uh, is in our viewership, <laughs> but um, if he is. Call me. Please contact Ian. Yeah. <laughs> um, where can people listen to the show? Uh, anywhere. Find it on uh, Apple Podcasts, my website, everythingisalive.com. Yeah, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And now some news. On Tuesday night, Letitia James and Keith Wooford faced off in their only debate for New York Attorney General, giving the public a show of disagreements on both policy issues and personal achievements. Ms. James rarely looked at Mr. Wooford, even when asking him a question. 
Both candidates are lawyers, but Mr. Wolford suggested that he is more skilled in the law than Ms. James, the New York City public advocate. In one of the sharpest attacks of the night, Ms. James hit back when she tried to turn Mr. Wolford's corporate legal experience against him. While staring directly at the camera, she took a swipe at him, saying she's been saving lives throughout her career while he has been saving corporations. This week, an attorney for immigration activist Ravi Ragbir pleaded with appeals court judges not to allow ICE to use deportation laws to silence a prominent critic of the agency. The arguments came in a hearing regarding a lower court's dismissal of Ragbir's suit, which alleges that ICE's attempt to deport him earlier this year was an attack on his right to free speech. ICE's detention of Rogbeer in January sparked rowdy protests in Lower Manhattan. The leader of the New Sanctuary Coalition then won a stay of deportation through the courts. He's pursuing a separate legal effort in New Jersey federal court to have a 2001 wire fraud conviction. ICE's stated justification for his deportation overturned. A U.S. judge on Tuesday turned down a last-ditch effort by accused Mexican drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman to delay his trial, scheduled to begin next Monday with jury selection in Brooklyn Federal Court. His legal team argued it hasn't had sufficient time to prepare, given the multitude of documents it must review. District Judge Brian Cogan had similar concerns about the scope of the case, that the prosecutors had indicated they were prepared to present evidence of Guzman's involvement in more than 30 murders, even though the charges against him are for drug trafficking. But the trial, he said, must go on. El Chapo has been in solitary confinement since being extradited to the United States from Mexico in January 2017. He is known internationally as the head of Mexico's Sinaloa cartel, as well as the perpetrator of one of the most elaborate prison breaks in Mexican history, after having sent his associates to engineering school in Switzerland so they could master tunnel excavation. If found guilty, perhaps his sentence should include mandatory community service for his team. We sure could use some help to reinforce the L-Train tunnel. In an 1878 issue of the New York Times, between letters to the editor and a report on a railroad company's foreclosure, was news of a haunting in Brooklyn. Spirits hardly ever make the news these days, and the only ghosts one is likely to encounter in Brooklyn are the sheeted kind on Halloween. But during the 19th and early 20th centuries, ghost stories were a common news item across the country. Turns out that since newspapers were often the sole source of both information and entertainment for readers, the stories were often tied to themes like the power of love, the finality of death, or the recurring meme of justice and fairness. But sometimes these ghost stories had no easy themes. Such was the case at 136 Clinton Avenue, where a resident named R.B. Thomas was left without answers. Quote, the police have tried and failed, Mr. Thomas said. We don't know what it is, but we do know it is no earthly agency. Sounds like a job for the Brooklyn Paranormal Society. Join Ashley Ford tomorrow on 112BK when we hear from the folks at Swing Left, working hard until Tuesday's midterms to paint the electoral landscape blue. One One Two BK is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It is also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Kritzi Roberts, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aishum, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>